The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey man, will you guys grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It's been about, I don't know, five weeks or so since we were in 2 Corinthians. Um, If you missed out on our series, Faithful Transmission, going through the mission and core values, what we hold dear and what we're called to here at Heritage Christian Fellowship, the church overall, but this church in particular, I really want to urge you and plead with you, um, if you're part of this church, please go and take those in and chew on that stuff for a little bit. In particular, um, the last of that particular series. I had no idea, by the way, the news that was going to come out the week that we did that message. And some of you guys are nodding, knowing what I'm talking about. When we talked about some of the challenges to the church, um, in, in specific, talking about the challenges that, for example, the gay marriage movement and things have. And then two days later, in the city of Houston, right in the Bible Belt, pastors were summoned um, or or subpoenaed, excuse me. Um, By the way, stick your hand up nice and high if you don't have a Bible. We'll make sure you get one of those. Thank you, Bob, for for doing that. Um, But in Houston, right there in the Bible Belt, subpoenas were issued to pastors with regards to their sermons, inter-office emails, text messages, any communication that they were having that had anything to do with the mayor, who, who is a lesbian mayor there, who's uh, doing some radical law changes there within city council, but anything to do with homosexuality, gay marriage, any of those sorts of things. The courts literally subpoenaed the pastor's sermons, emails, text messages, everything. And um, th- those pastors who choose not to comply with that court order um, are being threatened with being hit with contempt of court. And then three days later, in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, just, just north of us, um, it, there's a, a, a couple there that runs a, a marriage chapel like you'd see in, you know, Vegas or whatever. And, and uh, so it's, it's not a, a church per se, but they use it as a ministry to be able to reach out to couples and do premarital counseling and try to follow up with people after to be able to present the gospel. And um, they were ordered by the city that if they choose not to do gay marriages, they'll be fined $1,000 for each wedding they don't do and 30 days in jail. So that was the week of that sermon. I had no idea any of that stuff was coming out. So there are some legitimate challenges that the church does face. Um, And again, if you go back and listen to what we talked about that very week, um, there's things in that message to be said about our attitude facing those things, about the love that we show towards the lost, about our, our, our attitude, not getting all fired up about our rights and calling people out and pointing fingers, but about the fact that these people are lost and that there are people dying that need the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And the only thing that makes us different is that Jesus has already grabbed our hearts and we pray that he'll grab theirs now as well, amen? But there's some significant things in there. There were some significant announcements involved in that. As you guys um, that were here know, for example, our new affiliation with the Acts 29 Church Planning Network that we're really excited about, um, the benefits that are already paying off even just within church leadership and everything here. So we're really excited about that. Um, and also just some things to be praying about moving forward. As I shared with you guys, the, the, the issues that our, even our own attorneys are advising us with regards to churches are gonna have to have some form of church membership, um, or when the laws do change here, if you don't have something already in place that's going to grandfather clause you, you're in trouble. 
And so we're really having to look as a church about how we actually operate some of these things, but, but also just with wisdom looking at that. And this is where you can pray for us as a leadership because we don't want to just do something just to protect ourselves, but, but if it's something the church is going to do, we feel like we ought to be able to do it in such a way that it also brings glory to Christ and is a tool for discipleship. So in all of those things, some of you have never experienced a church that has membership and that freaks you out, relax. Um, some of you have experienced bad experiences with membership, and we don't, we don't really even know if we're going to have it for sure here as a church or not, but it, it looks like this is the culture of what churches in our country are going to be having to do. So we got a lot as a leadership to pray about and to wrestle with, and so I just encourage you and ask that you would just, um, just keep us in prayer, and, um, and, and let's just see what the Lord leads us to do. Amen? Amen. Well, now, though, today we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, going back into our verse-by-verse exposition through the book of 2 Corinthians. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, and then we'll dive into it. So let's read the word here together. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you, quoting Isaiah there. Behold, now is the favorable time, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true. As unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us but you're restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Let's pray. God, will you widen our hearts this morning? Will you widen our hearts, our minds, our soul to the understanding of this text? Will you, Lord, make live your words in our heart? Will you show us, Lord, what you desire to speak to your church through this? God, may your word rule over your people, and may we stand firm on its foundation this morning. God, I pray for me in particular, Lord, that you would not allow the wisdom or the vain ramblings of men to get in the way of what you desire to speak to your church. So God, may your Holy Spirit speak through even such as I. May you speak into the hearts of people. May you speak through the word open in our laps in front of us. May your will be done in this church as it is in heaven. And so, God, we pray, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my King, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, 
And all God's church said, amen. Um, I don't know that there is a better, more impacting, more powerful preacher um, in our generation, in our particular time right now in the United States than Pastor John Piper. Recently retired, there's certain guys that I just always go to when I'm listening to teachings on my own. And, and there's guys like Matt Chandler that I love that get me fired up. And, and there's other men that are out there that might tickle my intellect or cause me to think through things. But, but the guy who grabs my heart when I hear him preach is Pastor John Piper. Recently retired, but his legacy is going to far, far outlive him. And he had a quote along the lines of the text that we're in that says this, and I'd like you to listen carefully and take this in deeply. John Piper says this, we are a happy people, but we are not what you might call chipper. There is a plaintive strain in the symphony of our lives. I think Jesus was the happiest man who ever lived, and oh, how sorrowful. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. One thing that I have learned for sure, I've been pastoring this church for about six and a half years. I've been pastoring in general for a little over 12 years now. One thing I've learned is that, and I love all of you, don't be offended by this, but everyone has an opinion on how the church should be run. Everyone has an opinion on how things should look, how things should feel, how things should sound. And it's understandable because even in this room alone, we've got a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different personal experiences. There are things that touch your heart differently than they touch someone else's heart. So there's things that we're drawn to. And so a lot of people have a lot of different um, opinions on how things should go, even down to the mood and the feel that a church should have or express. And there are some people that do believe that we as a church should strive to be, maybe the word John Piper used there, chipper. That what we should be as a church are people that seem to walk above the difficulties and hardships that go on in life. That we should carry ourselves in such a way that no matter what happens to us, no matter what comes down the pipe, there is a forever smile, smile plastered on our face because we cannot show people that in following Jesus, we're still sad or we're still in difficulty. We have to show that Jesus has fixed all our problems. So as a church, what we need to do is make sure we do things that portray just this constant happiness to everyone we see. And I understand the heart of those that feel that way. I do. And I believe their intentions in that are good, though I believe misleading or misled. Because what does that say or do to the person that's sitting amongst us with cancer, watching the clock tick down rapidly? What does that say to the couple sitting amongst us whose marriage is literally in this moment a living hell as we smile and pretend that there's no difficulties around us? What does it say to the person that wrestles with sadness and isolation, alone, depression, despairing, as Paul would say, despairing of life, we would call it suicidal. What does that speak to those people? How does that minister to them? What about those whose children have disappointed them and left them? What about those who have lost their jobs or barely hanging on by a thread and then they come to the place of hope and they're surrounded by a bunch of people that seem to have no cares, no problems in the world and they start to feel, I guess it's just me. No, I don't believe that that helps. Others would say, that's right, Jeff. We need the opposite. We need like sorrow. 
We need solemnness. Maybe not sorrow, but at least we need to be solemn, morose, serious, softness, slow, low lights, soft music, slow music. We need to show the heaviness and the seriousness of our gathering as we're there together. But no, how does that represent the joy of the person who's been adopted into the family of God? How does that represent the debtor who has a massive debt and has just found out that that debt has been wiped clean? Your debt's forgiven. All right. <laughs> no way. Your debt's forgiven. Woohoo! That's joy. The sinner that finds out that those things that Satan constantly whispers in your ear to tell you you are not good enough, you will never be good enough, you can't possibly stand before God, you don't deserve anything, and then to come to Christ and find out that has been buried in the bottom of the ocean, it has been wiped clean, and your record is absolutely forgiven, joy, right? Am I alone in this? Like joy, right? So what do you do? Which one is it? How, how do you do those things? Well, what I believe Paul's going to show us in this particular text is that the, what the people of the world need to see are a people who, and the phrase that stands out to me the most as I read through this and I study this text that we're looking at, those that look and, and it says, we are sorrowful but always rejoicing. It's a paradox. We're sorrowful, but we are always rejoicing. What I think the world needs to see is that we're not playing a game here. That we're not pretending. We're not putting on a front. That our faith is not based on how well we can just fight a smile in our face in the midst of heaviness and pain and difficulty. I think what the world needs to see is that this is real. That this is genuine. And what the world needs to see is the grandeur of God hanging like a galaxy of hope over the sorrow and difficulty of this world. They need to see both. They need to understand the difficulty and see that there is a God that is so incredibly majestic and over top of all of these things. That's what the world needs to see. They need to see Christ with his arms open, ready to embrace them, but covered in the blood that he's poured out on our behalf. The, the risen Christ, looking at us with eyes of love through blood that's poured down his face, showing the cost of love that he's given us. This is what the world needs to see. The world needs to see and understand and realize the comforting power and influence of the Holy Spirit who is with us in this very moment. And they need to be introduced to the gigantic bedrock, the thousand foot deep foundation of God's word that we stand on. This is what the world needs. And so when we sing songs like the old hymns, when we sing, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy, and they shall break in blessings upon your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. This bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And they need to hear that as more than a song. 
more than something we just throw out there in some flowery language. They need to understand the reality of those truths in our lives, not just a banner or a church sign on the road where cars come by. They need to know that when we sing his oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood, when all around my soul gives way, he is all my hope and stay. They need to know that in Psalm 23 it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Not that it says, Because thou art with me, I never have to go through the valley of the shadow of death. They need to know that God is real and practical and applicable in the very depths of the difficulties of this life. This is what this world needs. The world needs to see that we are sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Does the world need happy Christians? Yes. Yes. But the world needs real Christians. The world doesn't need Christians that are happy the way the rest of the world is happy. Because think about it. Christian or not, when life's going good, isn't everyone happy? So how is any, that any different? What, is that, what message does that give to the world that's any different than anything else gives? When your team wins the Super Bowl and you win the lottery and your boss gives you a promotion and says you only have to work one day a week from now on, yes, happy, right? But there's no information in that. There's no message in that. There's nothing in that that commends Christ to the world. And so we, as Christians, are those who, who have a message for the lost in difficulty. Everyone's happy when things are good, but we live in a fallen world. And in reality, if we're really honest, things are rarely that good, if ever. So, so what does God have to say, and what does the gospel have to say for us in the midst of the difficulty? That's what Paul's going to say to his people here. Now, you need to remember the background of this passage as Paul writes, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. This is a church that Paul planted years previously. These are his children. He refers to himself as father of their faith. And he has a massive heart for this church. But in the time between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, this church has completely thrown their leader under the bus. Another group of men have come in who Paul refers to as super apostles. And that's not a superhero status. That's like mocking them, frankly. These people have come in and they've begun giving messages to the Corinthians that Paul would refer to in the book of Timothy as tickling to their ears. And he begins to talk about prosperity. They're the original prosperity theologians and they're, they're telling the people, are you sure you're following Paul? Why are you following that guy? Have you looked at this guy's life? His life is a wreck. He's a mess. He's got difficulty after difficulty after difficulty. And you're saying he's one of the apostles, one of God's chosen? Look, if he's a child of the king, I'm pretty sure the king would have him living a little bit better than what he is. This guy is not someone who should, you, you should follow. You are looking for victory in life. You're looking for answers and solution and happiness, aren't you? And the people, like all of us, would say, yes. And so they're saying, then you need to follow us. And they're throwing Paul under the bus. And so Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians in part to correct false doctrine, in part to reinstitute or prove, if you will, his calling and his apostleship, and in large part because it's a letter written to children that have gone astray and he desperately loves them. 
Please don't read this letter as if Paul's the professor from a long ways off writing a dissertation or a thesis and saying to the Corinthian people, now study this and do what it says and I'll check in on you later. No, this is a father's plea for his kids. And so he writes these things to them. And in verses 3 and 4 of first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul gives us his aim, his purpose, his goal in this particular portion of the text that we're studying. He says in verse 3, he says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. His first purpose, number one, is to remove obstacles. He knows that there are people in the church that have not yet fully given their hearts to Christ and he seeks to remove obstacles from the way that would prevent them from coming to Christ. And then number two, he says in verse four, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. He's desiring to remove obstacles from belief and then commend his ministry, himself, more importantly, the gospel, his savior to the people. So it's a removing of obstacles and a commending of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's goal. So then you read this and you have to scratch your head. Paul, your goal is to remove obstacles. You should rethink what you're writing I mean, ask yourself as we read through these things, if you went to a church growth specialist, if you hired a public relations firm and said, we need you to help us build attendance at our church and to get people outside the walls of the church to come into the church, we want to remove obstacles that are keeping them from coming in. How do we do that? They would say none of this, none of this. They would say things like, well, you need to make your children's ministry really like massive and grand and you need to get people's attention, giant, you know, blow up toys every week, things like that. You should hire Phineas and Ferb as your Sunday school teachers and you want to do that kind of stuff because you get the kids in and now the parents are stuck. They have to come. So you want to do that kind of stuff or you want to make the worship constantly trendy and add like lasers and stuff like that. And that's what you really want to do. Or you want to make things just as easy and as accessible. That's what you want to do because you want to remove anything that would be a hindrance from them coming in. You want to make it easy for them. Paul does none of this. Paul does none of this. In fact, what Paul does is the exact opposite of this. It would be easy to read Paul's words and say, Paul, I, I, I hear you, bud. I know you're trying to remove obstacles, but you just threw a bunch of them in the way, it would seem. But here's what Paul does. Paul removes obstacles in three ways. Number one, he describes his sufferings. It's a paradox, it seems. But he describes his suffering. Number two, he describes his character. And then number three, he is honest about the typical paradoxes of the church, of the Christian life, of our faith. So he's going to describe his sufferings, he's going to describe his character, and he's going to be honest about the paradoxes that exist in the Christian life. So in verse three, he says, just for the running start again, he says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hungers. Paul will never be hired by a PR firm writing like this. Like, hey, your church sign out front, here's what you want to do. Come to Heritage. There'll be beatings. Come to Heritage, you're going to suffer and be hungry. If anything, I remember the Baptist upbringing, it was come to the Baptist church, potluck. But here's Paul. 
writing about difficulties that exist as a way of removing barriers. Now, understand, Paul has been called a false apostle because of his difficulties. They've said, there's no way that's the chosen one of God because look at all the junk that he's walking through in life. If he was really God's chosen vessel, then I think things would go smoothly for him. He wouldn't go through the things that he's dealing with now. But what, what Paul is, is Paul's really honest about the reality that when Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, he wasn't just giving you a little Twitter speech to throw out from time to time. That Jesus was serious when he said, if you want to find your life, you will lose it. That he wasn't playing clever games when he taught these sort of things. And he was honest about the fact that as, an, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are part of an outpost. You are a kingdom outpost representing God in a world that is absolutely opposed to him. That you have been planted, if you will, in enemy territory. And you are created in the very image of God in a fallen world where Satan currently has pretty much free reign. So it's not always going to go well. And Paul's specific about this, not just in general, he's specific. He actually gives us sort of three, if you will, kinds of categories of difficulties. The first one you could describe as general difficulties. He says the first three in afflictions, hardships, and calamities. These are just general difficulties that will come your way because you live in a world that is fallen, that has been invaded now by sin and death. Life just gets hard. Things die. Christians get cancer too. Christians lose children too. Christian lose, Christians lose jobs too. There are some that would have us in that kind of chipper category pretend that now that we got the fish logo on the back of our car, it doesn't rain on our car, that, that we just go through life with a rainbow constantly over top of us, but we just know that's not true. There's difficulty. This world has fallen, and so things are going to happen. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Life is hard period. Not because you're bad, not because you're saved or unsaved, but just plain because the world has fallen. Amen? So there's general difficulty, but then there's number two, there's troubles that are caused by others. In verse five, he says, beatings, imprisonments, and riots. Jesus told us we're not to be surprised when people oppose us because they're opposing Jesus. And Peter, when he wrote, he said, hey, when people are persecuting you, saying things about you, coming against you, don't, don't be surprised and act like it's this strange thing that's coming on you. This is part of the package. It may be fine print in most brochures, but this is how it works. That in reality, choosing to go outside the walls of this room right here, and here we can say anything we want regarding the scriptures and feel safe for the most part, but going outside the walls, there are places where when we say some of the easiest things even in scripture, well, doesn't the Bible even tell us the gospel is offensive to the world that's out there? And on one hand, it doesn't make sense because we're like, how is that offensive? Because Jesus died to save them. God desires to save them. But the reason it's offensive is that first part that says we need to be saved. That first part that says because we're fallen and broken and sinful and wicked, we needed a savior. And most people can't get past that first part. That when you go tell people that the things they're doing in life, the lifestyle they have, whatever the case might be, is opposed to God and is wrong, most people shut down right there. Never even make it to the grace part of this. 
And so as we're seeing in the world around us right now, you go say these kinds of things. I mean, who was it? Louis Giglio, who was invited to be our president's uh, keynote, or no, it was the prayer thing, the the national prayer thing that we're going to do. If you know anything about Louis Giglio's ministry, there is not a more gracious, kind, good-natured man on the planet that is ministering for Jesus Christ. And because they pulled up a sermon that he spoke in 1997 that dealt with the issue of homosexuality in the Bible, they shut him down. I mean, it's just, that's just the reality of it. And that's not a modern day thing. That is a history of Christianity thing. People do not want to be told that they're wrong. That's why when Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean broke. It means the spiritually bankrupt. The people that realize that, as Paul says, there's nothing good in me, that I am fallen in desperate need of a savior, the people that get to that point are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. And so when we go with that gospel message is to us, and it's beautiful, is it not, is not the gospel beautiful? But it is offensive to those who are opposed to the work of Jesus Christ. If you haven't experienced this, I encourage you, you're, you're supposed to share the gospel anyway, but this week, just go give it a shot. See how it goes. It doesn't always go well, right? And so Paul's Paul's honest about this. Like, hey, follow me, but know that in following me, there are beatings, there are imprisonments, there are difficulties. And then the third thing is, you might say troubles that, I guess we could almost call it self-inflicted. He says, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. And this is just Paul being realistic and honest about the fact that ministering on behalf of the gospel and serving God's people, spreading the gospel to the world outside, pushing back against injustice as we talked about in our series on mission, that that stuff's just hard. And that you're gonna get tired. That you're gonna be up late nights praying for people. You're gonna lose sleep grieving over those who are opposing you. That serving God's people sometimes is just plain hard. He's not painting some flowery picture. Come to Jesus and all your problems will be fixed. He's saying, no, it's hard. It's hard. So Paul says, I'm removing barriers from belief for you by being honest about difficulties, by telling you about the trouble that's caused by others, and by the exhaustion and how just plain hard and tired it can be in serving God's people. Paul's just saying life's hard. Next, Paul goes on to describe his character. Look at verse six. He says, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. He sits here and now talks about his character. He's honest about the difficulties. Now he's describing his character in light of these difficulties. So what is Paul saying? What does this list say to us? What Paul's saying is, is look, The difficulties in life do not cause me, should not cause us to get bitter and angry and defensive, go into attack mode. But instead, we serve a God who has given us the Holy Spirit. And that is the key to all of this. He says it right in the middle of verse 6 and again in the middle of verse 7. He says the Holy Spirit and in verse 7, the power of God. He's talking about the Holy Spirit You go into Galatians chapter five when Paul writes about the fruit of the spirit. What is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the life of believer? It's almost an identical list. He says, there's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Almost the exact same list. And what he's saying is this. 
These difficulties are real, but they do not determine who we are. The Holy Spirit, the power of God, God's character, what we know in God's word, that's what determines how we are, how we act, and how we respond to these things. So that when I am beaten, I don't go into bitterness. And when I am rejected, I don't go into anger. But instead, by the grace of God, to one degree to the next, growing as we grow older, we are shaped and molded and formed into the image of Christ. Now, I'm, I'm not calling for supermen here. I mean, when you find out you got cancer, it's going to take you a couple of days probably, right? And there's grace for that. So we're not looking, again, for chipper, fake, I'm dying, sweet. No, because Paul, the same man who wrote, hey, to die is gain, also writes in Corinthians to say that there were times he despaired of life. It's part of the human condition. That's why the Psalms say God knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. He gets it. Jesus has been afflicted in every way that we are. He is acquainted with our griefs and our sorrows. But the Holy Spirit of God, by God's grace, lifts us above those things or carries us through them is a better way of saying it. So he speaks to his character. He's been honest about difficulties, described his character, and then finally, he's honest about the paradoxes of the Christian life. He says in verse eight, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet we are true, as unknown and yet we are well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. It's just the reality of when you walk in the light and you speak the truth of the gospel, there are those who are going to esteem you and there are going to those who are going to want to tear you down. There are things in life that are going to build you up and there are other things that are going to knock you down. And that, that's what Jesus meant when he said to us in Luke six twenty six. he says, woe to you when all men speak what? Well of you. For that's what they spoke of the old false prophets before you. So Jesus guaranteed us that when we are living to honor God, to serve God, and to be on mission with God and to share his gospel, there's going to be those kinds of paradoxes. People are going to beat us and yet we live in Christ. People are going to reject us and yet we are accepted by God. We're going to speak the truth, but people are going to call us a liar. This is the paradox within Christians all live. This is, the, this is our alley right here. And so Paul describes all of these things. And so if Paul then concludes this with an appeal to be like him, and he says, verse 11, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. And in return, and I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also. He says, I am pouring my heart out here. He says, I'm speaking freely to you. In other words, I'm holding nothing back. I have, I have exposed every area of my heart to you. I have opened my entire life to you. I have tried to show you all of these things. I'm not painting a false picture over here. I'm being honest about these things over here. I'm pouring everything out. My heart is wide open to you. And children, I'm pleading with you. Be like me. You see him saying that here? Let your heart be like mine. So if Paul was here speaking to heritage, and that is who he's writing to today now, he is writing to, by the power of the Spirit, the people at this church, and he's saying, heritage, cry a lot and never 
be apart from the joy, not for a moment, that exists in Jesus Christ. Do you hear me, heritage? Mourn, weep, be sorrowful, and always rejoice. Right? Yay. Great, Paul. Thanks for that. (laughs) How do you do that? How do you rejoice always and be sorrowful at the same time? How do you do that? And if there's joy in Christ, I mean, this is Paul who actually wrote in Philippians, he says, rejoice in the Lord, what? Always. And then just in case you missed it, he says, and again I say, rejoice always, he says. And then here he says he's sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. How do you do that? And this is, guys, this is more, the words he's using here, this is more than just difficulty and suffering. This isn't just endure suffering by gritting your teeth and get through it kind of a thing, or even with a good attitude. When he talks about be sorrowful, he's talking about an inner emotion. Like there should be an actual movement to sorrow within our hearts, and yet we should rejoice always. When the world. Well, let's return back to Paul's aim. Remember Paul's intent. And and really, what are the first three rules of biblical interpretation? Somebody make me proud. Context, context, context. And there is something that can be lost if we're not careful when we study the scriptures only to study a certain verse or three at a time. Sometimes it's good to back up and just read the whole thing because that's how you capture best the heart of the flow of a passage. So think about where we are here. In fact, just look back, if you will, go back to verse 18 of the previous chapter. In chapter five, Paul is writing here about the, the, this idea that we are ministers of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. And here's what Paul says, and catch the flow of all of this as we go through it. He says this, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Catch this, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And working together with him then, we appeal to you, do not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I've listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation." We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. This is what Paul's message is. This is not a dissertation on how to endure suffering. This is not a dissertation on how we should set the environment for our church, how we should present ourselves to that degree necessarily. What this is, is a revelation, an exposure, if you will, of the heart of a father whose children need Jesus. 
This is what it is. This is what it says. He's saying, today is the day for salvation. I am imploring you that you would be saved. I'm urging you and pleading with you on behalf of Christ. And I want to remove barriers out of the way that would keep you from being saved. And again, that's where we'd raise our hand and say, then what are you doing, Paul? Why would you say this stuff? Talk about gold streets, man. Talk about pearly gates. Talk about Jesus who heals. Talk about that stuff. You start talking about depression and calamities and hardships, that does not sell Paul. But what Paul's doing here is so important. What Paul is doing is he is showing people, I'm not in this for the money. I'm not in this for personal gain. I'm not in this for prestige. I'm not trying to build the biggest church. I'm not trying to get the biggest name. I'm not trying to get my my letter distributed in the widest markets. What I'm trying to show you is that this is real. I'm not faking it. And that this Jesus Christ who has saved me is better than anything on the face of the earth. I'm not after worldly gain because that stuff pales in comparison to the person of Jesus Christ who has saved me. And that though everything around me can be taken away and I go through difficulties and people do mock me and it hurts, but Jesus is still worth it and he's still better than all of this stuff. Amen? Can't believe that didn't get an amen. Wake up. But we should ask ourselves then, If that's the case, and it's clearly the case, why is it that so many commend Jesus Christ, commend Christianity to the world using those very things that Paul's getting out of the way? Why do they do that? There are ministries out there. I've I've seen them in America. I've seen them really close even in Africa. There, There was a church there in Africa who, because of the affiliation that it has, requires its pastors to live in the nicest house in any neighborhood, to drive the nicest car. Just, just to say driving a car in Africa, by the way, is a big deal. To say driving the nicest car in Africa is huge. And they are told, both there and in places here, you have to do that. Because the idea is you're showing people, hey, come with us, join our faith. And if your faith is strong, man, God will bless you just like me. And the role model that they seek to show is the things that God will give you if you come to him. People know this. I want this church to know this so well. We talk about it all the time. We're talking about it again. You got to know this. Listen, if you call people to Christianity using things, that's not Christianity. That's idolatry. That is putting things above Jesus. I mean, who wouldn't come to Christianity if we all get BMWs and mansions? But that's not Christianity. And it teaches people nothing of the reality that the road to heaven is a Calvary road. Where Jesus says, take up your cross. If any man wants to follow me, you take up your cross daily and follow me. That we daily die to ourselves that we might follow Christ. It is a false gospel. It's not just a misleading gospel. It is a false gospel. The whole purpose of Paul's letter is to address this very thing and to say, don't follow them. Follow me and understand this. 
And so Paul is commending Christ to them and removing obstacles from them by elevating Christ, not stuff, not blessings and things, but Christ above anything that we could have or will go through. Christ alone is enough. That's the call of the Christian. That's the life we live. That when all around my soul gives way, he is all my hope and stay. If they take everything from us in this life, we've lost nothing because we have Jesus Christ. This is the message of Paul. This is the context of Paul's message. And this is how the world around us is going to see that Christ is real. How else will they know how precious he is? They're not wandering into our Bible studies accidentally anymore. But they're watching what we value. They're watching how we carry ourselves through difficulty. And they're not looking for fake because cancer's coming for them too. They're looking for someone who is empowered by God through this, who who is not destroyed because their house burned down, but is full of joy as Christ is elevated. This is the message that Paul has, and this is what the world needs. This sin-wrecked, destroyed, broken, fallen, greedy, hurting, pain-filled world needs to see a group of people who are demonstrating the reality that Jesus Christ is all we need. That's all. He's the only thing our hope's in. This is what the world needs. And you go, awesome, then we're back to the whole happy thing. Jeff, I don't understand the deal. If that's the reality, then when we go through stuff, then we should just be happy all the time. Any Lego movie people out here? Everything is awesome, right? Not a fan of that movie. I know that puts me in the minority. It just drives me nuts. But anyway, that's what we should do, Jeff. Just be happy all the time. Well, let let me paint two pictures for you. If Actually, the scriptures paint two pictures for you that I'd like to show you, and then we'll be done. One of them is through the teachings of Jesus, and one of them through some other writings of Paul. First, Jesus, when he's in Matthew chapter 5. Let's put that slide up, please. Jesus is, we've already talked about this Sermon on the Mount, and in Matthew chapter 5, it's a passage, part of the Beatitudes, right in the very beginning of this kingdom teaching about what it is and what it looks like to follow Jesus and be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, blessed are you, When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's what Paul's dealing with, right? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're all on board with this, right? Now look at the very next thing Jesus says. You are the salt of the earth. Now do you think that's an accident? Is that a new chapter? Like, did he just, now let's change the topic and now we're gonna talk about salt to the earth. No. We talked about this, remember? Salt is the preservative that in the midst of decay, salt pushes against the effects of death and decay. And so here too, we're in a fallen world where people are hammering us and persecuting us and talking evil against us and they're just absolutely throwing us under the bus constantly. We know our reward is in heaven and then our responsibility as Christians walking through that here on earth is what? We are the salt of the earth. And this is the kind of saltiness the world needs to see because they go through stuff too. We're not the only people ridiculed. We may be the only ones being ridiculed for the gospel, but do you know how many young women are being mocked for the way they look? 
and being singled out because they don't fit some picture that some boy's been looking at on the internet since he was 10? I mean, do you know how many people are being mocked for the way they live, for the the family they have, for the depression they go through, whatever the case may be, man, life's hard for everybody. But then we have the opportunity to be the salt of the earth who are carried through even the stiffest of persecutions. It's a preservative. We get to show them that Christ is enough. And then secondly, there's the writings of Paul. Now I mentioned again, Paul is the guy who wrote from prison, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, he wrote that from prison, okay? So it'd be really easy to take that and say, yeah, chipper, see, just smile. Beat me, thank you, sir, can I have another as you get the whips? You know, that kind of a thing, right? But look what Paul writes in Romans 9, verse 2. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. All right, Paul, which is it? Rejoice in the Lord always, and I have unceasing anguish in my heart. Which is it? It's not either or, it's both and. It's sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You say, what what does that mean? These sound like opposites. How can you do this? Because this is what he's talking about. In Romans chapter nine, just like what he's writing in 2 Corinthians, Paul is, he's writing about his family. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a leader of the Jewish people who had immense pride in his nationality. And in Israel, it's not just a nationality, it's a family. Their very lineage is tied into the statehood of Israel. And he's writing to those people and he's saying to them, my family is going to hell and I'm killing myself here. I am pouring out everything that I can. I'm trying to remove obstacles everywhere that I can and commend Christ everywhere that I can because the options for them are limited and they need the salvation that Jesus Christ has given me. And so he has found hope and joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And he is brokenhearted at the reality that there are people around him who have not been there yet. It's both and. They're one and the same. Heritage, this must be us. This must be us. People who stand firmly on the gospel of Jesus Christ, who sing and rejoice and lift hands, who can't even imagine when we read and sing the lyrics of in Christ alone that sin has no more power over me, that I've been set free. That is unbelievable. And at the same time, broken hearted. I mean, broken hearted over the reality that there are so many people out there that don't. And I'm not talking theoretically. I mean, I pray God breaks our heart emotionally for those who don't have Jesus. We need more than people who will stick a salvation track in with the Halloween candy. We need people that will sit across the table from a loved one whom they've already talked to Jesus about before and who maybe God will grace them with the gift of tears in that moment and who will say, I'm pleading with you. Be reconciled. This isn't a game. This is real who will revel in the joy that Jesus could save a wretch like me. 
and then be brokenhearted and on our knees, willing to stay up late praying, skip meals, exhaust ourselves if necessary for the sake that we might reach some. This is the context. Look where Paul does this. Go back even earlier into that passage. Get the context in Romans chapter 8 and look what he says. Verse 31 says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Everybody say amen. That's a bumper sticker verse, right? T-shirts, boxers carry that around. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things. Notice, it doesn't say apart from all these things. It doesn't say Christ has saved you away from all of these things or carries us and floats us above all these things. What does it say? In all these things we are more than conquerors. We're more than just happy people that float above difficulties of life as God's children. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen to that? And then he says, but I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Do you see it? It is more, we gotta do more than rejoice in our salvation. I am praying that God will literally break our hearts and our emotions and drive us to tears for the loved ones we have that don't have Jesus. Will you rise to this heritage? Will you claim and walk in a faith that far exceeds some sort of chipperness, but that rises above the morose and the solemn, that rejoices in the salvation that God has given us and weeps at those who have not tasted and seen that God is good? This is what we're called to. This is our story. This is our song, praising our Savior all the day long. Will you stand and pray with me? Father, will you break our hearts? Father, will you give us that Paul-like depth of sorrow for those who do not know you? Lord, will you make your church a place where we rejoice in salvation, but we tremble in fear and in sadness at those that do not have you? Lord, will you help us to be able to exhibit grace as we walk through difficulty? Will you increase our testimony with those around us as we go through hard things? May we weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, and may we rejoice with those who rejoice. 
But God, our prayer, and those who would pray with me, Lord, our prayer is that you would capture every moment of our lives and use them for your glory and your grandeur. That there would be no wasted experiences anywhere. That no affliction will come across us that is not used for your glory, for the salvation of many. That no good thing comes our way that is not used for your glory to point to the goodness in Jesus Christ. May nothing in our lives, not one second be wasted, that this world might behold the grandeur of God, the galaxy of hope that you are, that you might carry us through difficulty and tribulation.